0: Five, four, three two one i'm john Miglosh for the wdma we're gonna talk about okay i got a nice reply from um from mike porter oh mike's mike's here right now uh okay he tried to comment but linkedin wouldn't let me <laughs> you can comment now Anyway, he wrote me a long letter basically saying that uh, he usually talks to printers, right? And so, uh, yes, testing is crucial, but usually the printers aren't the people in charge of it. Could AI steal voice actors' jobs? Or more precisely, can it steal voice actors' voices? And the truth is yes. And the reason this I, I wanted to talk about this is because, you know, my... My son and I were talking about AI and creativity and how it's original work that the AI is doing, and it's not. It's not at all. You know, just because they take a 100 voices to composite one voice doesn't mean that they're not stealing the 100 voices in a certain way, shape, or form. Now, you can argue that if if an artist admires another artist's work and tries to replicate the style without... uh, you know, without the same subject matter, that that's an original work of art, and I think there's something to it. Um, Trump Fenn had a a really interesting extended article about how, how Van Gogh and his impressionism was driven by the, by the emergence of film photography, that artists decided that they should talk, they should try to portray the feelings conveyed by the scene rather than try to photo replicate it there but there was a pretty good industry of people who could do a reasonable job on a portrait and for very little money you could have a portrait painted of your of your beloved wife or your husband or or your family and kids and uh and that was a real job and people made a living you know for a lifetime that way and then the camera came along and uh many of those people learned to do the photography um, but the artists were very challenged by that, so this is a challenge. And here's the here's the real problem: uh, if you don't pick something a voice that sounds like, if you pick somebody that sounds like Morgan Freeman or Remy Michelle Clark, you know somebody can complain. The artist could complain. Uh, Universal Music Group got YouTube to scrub videos of generated eminem and drake voices voice actors and uh and, and a number of them okay re revoicer said it got michelle clark's voice via a licensing agreement with microsoft and she had done work from microsoft but agreed to remove it after the washington post uh after washington post reached out so if your voice is generally unique you can you might be able to fight it i I have uh 1200 videos on YouTube. So, you know, it's practically in the public domain and they, it wouldn't be hard to get a voice actor to do this job every day. Although um although now I got I'm in the wrong page. Although I had a nice conversation almost an hour with Dave Jesco. I think he's in Bucharest. Um and he uh he he Said he enjoys the videos and he can tell that they're unscripted. That is that is beyond true. <laughs> I said I don't even know half the time what I'm going to say when I sit down. But one of the points I wanted to make is is that you know I I uh, pioneered machine learning customer segmentation back in the mid 90s and uh, we made a lot of money for people compared to their R F M and we still can if that's what you're if you're at the R F M level we can take you beyond that. But what's interesting is, is that uh, several other companies um, have recently not, you know, I told them in the 90s, I told Abacus, the president of Abacus, we did a joint venture to see what I could do with their data. And I said, you know, you should be working on customer files, not just prospecting. And, uh, and Dan there, who was the president said, you know, he said, um, Dan White, I think it was his name. He said. We throw ninety percent of what we get away from from catalogers and such," he said. "You you use it," he said. "This is a phenomenal," um, but they were, you know, they had a good business model of of sharing prospect information. But I said, you know, you could apply this in a rich environment. Well, just in the last maybe five years, they've they've turned their focus to the customer file, and they have uh, they had a better variable than I had, which was likelihood to buy through the mail. And uh, from the catalog members, or you could call it e-commerce. And that one, you know, without that missing piece, it was difficult for me to beat it because that's a very, very powerful variable. In other words, uh, you could take customers that haven't bought from you in four years, but you can find out that they're buying from a lot of other people. And therefore, they're worth mailing, as opposed to somebody who hasn't bought from you in four years and hasn't bought from anybody else either, as far as we can tell. Uh, that's That's somebody who maybe just you know, bought on a whim. We found buyers in Cabela's, uh, we found their best hunting buyers were men in upscale areas like, um, you know, upper Manhattan. Um, Their worst buyers who never seemed to buy again, we did some analysis of, you know, who's going to come back again and who isn't, were women in those same areas, especially if they bought camouflage. And our, our thinking was that they were, you know, they were putting together a costume or something you know some some special event that they wanted to dress up in camo and they would buy that but they weren't hunters they weren't doing expeditions and safaris uh and so um so anyway our modeling process was complex and we beat musician's friend you tried 11 different tests with phd statisticians and modeling companies around the world and we beat them all um but now Weiland has automated the modeling process, and I'm sure it's full of spurious correlations, because um, we would we we beat pretty much everybody we go head to head against. If we would have had that variable, we would have, uh, or or actually mail it uh, back tests. You know they keep the spurious variables because there's no harm in it. But um, when you can churn them out for almost no money, you know eventually you'll get to something that works, and uh, and so that's kind of been where we're at. We can, I'm sure, beat their models, but, you know, we're more expensive. Uh, Subscribers can access hundreds of voices that can be made to say anything in various emotions and accents for as little as $27 a month. Will that take jobs? You bet. So, and the same thing with creative. You know, Scott Adams said years ago, well, the creative doesn't have to be that good. The creative has to be um, testable. As long as you set it up in head-to-head tests, which Mike agreed, uh, Mike Porter, um, as long as you set it up in head-to-head tests, you can – you just need a lot of tests, uh, which if you want to go back and read my Did Direct Mail uh, did Direct Mail Tip the Election, uh, it uh, one of my best articles on LinkedIn is that article, and it's way at the bottom of my articles because it was done like six years ago, seven years ago. Um, But it explains how uh, Brad Parscale did his testing and he would test he tested thousands and thousands of things at once Um, essentially using AI and massive um, massive test analysis tools to to run that it wasn't so much about the creative per se but about how he could do head to head all the time and it was all direct marketing Um, and. Brad actually reviewed the article and said that I was the only one who got what he was doing (laughs) Uh, in the 2016 election. So, anyway, if you have a job that can be... can churn out more content, look out. Okay, Wendy Davis put out another article today. Uh, Tennessee lawmakers passed privacy bill viewed as weak. And... um, The reason it's deemed weak is that it doesn't give consumers the right to opt out of common forms of online behavioral advertising. Now, I'm not sure how that happens, you know, and I'm also not sure how you. uh, It says that it would enable people to learn what information about them has been collected, okay? So when we model, we have about a thousand variables on every customer, thousand, and they're not, you know, the machines keep it straight. But if we were to try to print it out, we might be able to give you the, the, the header record, which would be abbreviations because they can only be so long. You couldn't make heads or tails of that. We can barely make heads or tails of that. And You'd have thousands and thousands of little ones, twos, and threes. And what good would it be? But also, I've counseled my clients that even if the law says you should delete people who request to be deleted, don't ever do it. Because without them understanding the list business, which in general is ignored by these, by these laws anyway, but theoretically somebody could, you know, could have read about a law and said, I demand you delete me from your file and never mail me again. Sounds like a plausible request. If not reasonable, if you delete them, then the next time you rent names, you could have that person in your rented list. Now, you don't have that. You don't have the information. You don't have their name, but you have sent them a mailing piece, another mailing piece. And, you know, I imagine if you went to jury trial and they held up piece A where they complained and complained and complained to get deleted and piece B that the only difference is a little tracking code or something on the back of the catalog you'd lose i think you'd lose i would hope you'd lose (laughs) so the direct mail industry has historically said let's instead of deleting a person who would like not to be mailed let's keep their record and put a flag on it to not mail them and if you do that then you can suppress them from the rented lists so that no matter how many times they turn up in other lists that you are are uh, open to mailing, they will not get your catalog anymore. That is a much more certain way to make sure that they're not annoyed and sue you, okay? So be careful how you apply these laws. Think about the intent of the law rather than the letter of the law often. And Wendy used non-pseudonymous, non-pseudon- I guess it is, um, five times again in this article she used it about that many times yesterday in an article about Montana so I actually looked it up pseudonymous data is data that has been de-identified from the data's subject but can be re-identified in other words the person we can connect up the cookie doesn't really tell your name as it rides around but if we go back to the cookie source we can look up look up what your name is okay so theoretically we could then back match that to your address and keep you off of our mailings. Anonymous data is data that has been changed so that it, so that re-identification of the individual is impossible. And that's the sort of thing we do with tokenization. Oftentimes we'll, take, we'll tokenize data like the name and the credit card information so that it can't be reconstructed except by the credit card company who did the tokenization. And I won't get into the details of that, but I, I did write a patent on that. <laughs> so i do know something now let's see how many minutes i've talked here see how i'm doing not enough uh so we'll put this off to tomorrow uh the 13 reasons why why mail isn't dead gets into some really good stuff and uh and so we'll talk about that tomorrow uh from uh neil patel and it's getting better, so I'm getting excited, and you should be excited about tomorrow's show. It's going to be fun. Okay, so have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. And also, you know, go over to wdma.org/join and support our work. Subscribe. It's free, or you know, even uh, you could even join. It's about twenty dollars a month. And I know if you listen, you get some great content, and it would have, it would possibly Allow us to have a greater voice. Maybe advertise the show or something. So support the work, especially if you're in the direct marketing industry, because we promote you, and if you write a blog, feel free to send it. We'll talk about it, and we'll all learn something from it. Have a great day. Bye-bye.